Hi, everybody. Alan Arnett here with another podcast and the blog on alanarnett.com. It is Friday. Hey, happy Friday, everybody. June 2nd, 2023. And this is probably my last podcast for the Everest 2023 season, given that people are pretty well off of the mountain and uh, ladders are being taken up by the icefall doctors. And anybody who owned the summit probably has already had a chance to go up and make it. But you know, <laughs> I've been doing this now for close to 25 years. I've learned to never say never that you never know when someone's going to, you know, sneak in another summit at the end and somehow or another talk the icefall doctors into keeping the ladders up just for another few days. But I really don't think so. So I think it's pretty well done. Well, what a season it was. Let's go through it. And then I want to do a, uh, a narrative, which has been very popular this year. I want to talk about uh, the last trip through the icefall, getting back to base camp, and then what it means to be an Everest summiter when you get back home or not. <laughs> okay, so if by my calculations, we've got about 600 people who have summited Everest on the Nepal side. There was summits on the Chinese side, on the Tibet side, by a Chinese uh, scientific team that was doing maintenance on that weather station they put in last year near the summit, uh, it, where there were 16 people that did that. Uh, China did not reopen um, Everest to start issuing tourist visas until late in March. That was too late for the commercial operators to run ex expeditions this year. So uh, pretty well, it was all action was on the Nepal side once again. You know, last time we had foreigners that summited on the uh, Chinese side was 2019. And then COVID hit and China really kind of clamped down for the last several years. I fully expect to see 2024 re return back to pre-pandemic conditions on the Tibet side. And um, I think there's going to be a little bit of a pent-up demand to go on that side. A lot of people do prefer that, so they don't they don't have to go through the icefall uh, and other objective hazards on the Nepal side, plus that's less crowded. Probably two 300 people next year so we'll see that take a little bite out of the numbers on the nepal side but um you know, we'll see what happens next year so 600 people by my estimation this again it's my rough estimation 250 foreigners summited supported by about 350 sherpas uh so that makes it about a 1.5 um, support to client ratio. And that's about what has become normal these times. Um, <clears throat> there was one expedition on one of the other 8,000 meter mountains that um, uh, he had 15 Sherpas supporting one client. That's a little over the top, don't you think? But uh, <laughs> most people have maybe one uh, and in a group, maybe you'll have a 1.5. Some people have two to one, which um, if you, you know, if you're using extra oxygen running at six or eight liters per minute, then uh, yeah, that probably makes sense that you've got to have an extra Sherpa to carry those extra bottles. But, you know, that's one of the reasons that Everest is so crowded these days. It's that high uh, support ratio and the high number of Sherpas that are summiting. So when you see those pictures of long lines, just take that into account that they're not all, you know, rich corrupt, famous foreigners, because <laughs> that's what everybody says about whoever summons Everest these days, rich, corrupt foreigners. Okay, well, let's get that out of the way. You know, though, Nepal issued 478 permits, and there were a lot of fears that this was going to be a, a big year, uh, mimicking 2019. We've gone through this a lot of times that <clears throat> 2019, the root cause of those lines were the limited number of weather days, only three. This year, it pretty well spread out over the last two weeks of May that allowed teams to go from, you know, from around May 
May 15th to May 26th, 27th at the most. Uh, there were roughly 40 teams on Everest this year. And so that's how they were able to spread out. Also, there was a very high attrition rate this year. There was a virus that was running around base camp. Um, there was also some talk that uh, people who had COVID in uh, previous years, uh, somehow or another, they impacted their lungs or respiratory system. And that uh, increased the number of people that left mid-climb. Mid so of those 478, roughly half of them actually got an opportunity to go for the summit. And so that really helped to alleviate the, the uh, fear of, uh, of, client, of, of crowding as well. Uh, the, the winds were very high. As we know, in the first half of May, um, that kept the uh, ropes from getting to the summit by the rope team until around May 15th. Uh, but once it got there, then people began going up and down. It was a very, very cold year, though. Um, my good friend and weather forecaster, meteorologist based out of Denver, Chris Tomer, and also Michael Fagan out of Seattle, and um, Mark DeKeeser out of Belgium, they all agree that this was one of the coldest years that they have seen. And in talking to uh, some of the leaders up there, people like Guy Cotter, he said that for the first time in his 30 years, think about this, for the first time in his 30 years of going to Everest, that two of his Sherpas got a little frost nip on their fingers. One may lose the tip of his finger, sadly, the other one's going to recover just fine. But most everybody agreed that this was a very, very cold year. The summit temperatures were in the neighborhood of, of 20 degrees uh, below zero Fahrenheit. Um, you combine that with a 25 mile an hour wind or 30 mile an hour gust, 35, that makes for some deadly wind chill. And so there was a fair number of frostbite reports and that also contributed to the high number of rescues. Again, Guy Cotter suggests that there were 200 rescues that came from uh, Camp 2. Let that sink in for a second. 200 helicopter rescues out of 478 people. So, you know, clearly there was something going on this year that made it a little bit different than uh, in the previous years. Um, you know, one of the things that also is uh, going to come up this year was that this was the um, 17 deaths uh, are going to probably be the final toll for this year. So let's try to break that down a little bit. Um, you know, there were five Sherpas who died, three early in the icefall collapse, and then two other Sherpas died from what appears to be, one was a fall and one appears to be natural causes. And then that leaves um, another uh, 10 people or so called clients or foreigners that died on the mountain. Uh, so, I'm sorry, 12, that leaves 12. So what's going on there? Well, several of those were all over 50 and it appeared to be natural causes. Some of the other ones were, they died on their summit attempts, they either died coming down from the summit on their way up, um, and most likely those were altitude related. And in my opinion, and when I talk to other people like Lucas Frutenbach, so he says that he feels that all of those uh, were, uh, all the ones except for the kind of the natural causes were totally avoidable, that people were going up either in incredibly cold conditions, which the weather forecasters knew about and they forecasted it. So the operators had, you know, they still took their teams up in those really harsh conditions. Other times, people ran out of supplemental oxygen, which is, I don't, I don't understand that at all. And then the one that totally baffles me are the climbers that found themselves alone. Um, there were several cases this year of people that were rescued by uh, Sherpas that found them completely alone and I guess abandoned by their guides. For the life of me, I cannot understand how that happens. Um, you know, also I can't understand how people get lost on these on the standard route. So there's a fixed rope. All you have to do is stay clipped in with your carabiner, and you know that's the number one rule of climbing these mountains: is never ever get unclipped 
from the safety line. But also you're, you're climbing with a team. In some cases, you've got five, 10, some huge numbers, 20, 30 people on a team going up. So how you get separated, how you get abandoned with a commercial guide, you know, I just don't understand it. And I think it goes to the point that if your team is understaffed, if your team has underqualified support, in other words, people that have never themselves experienced this, and this is the first time on a big mountain like an Everest or a Dalagiri or Kanyanchunga, something like that, then um, you probably shouldn't be with them on their first time. You should be climbing with uh, Sherpas that have been there several times, and there should be an apprentice type of a system. The best operators do that. The best operators have very highly qualified Sherpas, as well as perhaps uh, foreigners, doesn't have to be Western guides, but they definitely have to have qualified Sherpas who understand mountaineering and understand when people begin to show symptoms of cerebral edema, which is uh, where your brain starts to swell. And the only way that you can solve that is to get down because you become very confused, very disoriented, and you have no longer made good decisions. Pulmonary edema is another case where fluid builds up in your lungs and you can't breathe. You make a gurgling sound whenever you start to breathe. And that's, if you were with people that are aware of those types of symptoms, they recognize it early, your life can definitely be saved, or at least it increased dramatically by getting you as low as possible, as fast as possible. So, you know, uh, this year, those 17 deaths is just, uh, uh, it's just tragic for the families. Absolutely tragic. You know, another thing on the deaths, a lot of people will say, wait a minute, Alan, um, didn't more people die in 2015 when the earthquake devastated uh, base camp? And uh, technically, that's absolutely correct. And the numbers vary somewhere between 19, 18, and 20 to 21, 22, depending upon how you count it. <laughs> you know, there's that old saying, um, lies, damn lies, and statistics. Well, here we have it in this case where statistics get very convoluted. So, you know, if you look at 2015, 13 people who died of the, let's say 21, were actually people that were climbing on Everest. So if you compare that to the 17 this year, they were all climbing on Everest. Nobody died climbing on Lhotse or climbed on Noopsi. These 17 all died while climbing on Everest. So a 17 compared to 13, I think is the apples to apples comparison. Also, but if you look at years like in 2000 or 1996, for example, you know, the end of thin air year, uh, that year there were 15 people who died. Um, and so that's a pretty high percentage because 98 people summited that year. So 15 people died out of 98 people who summited. That makes a percentage of 15%. Oh, no, I know it's getting wonky. So stay with me. Come on, everybody, wake up, wake up. You know, I know I said there's going to be no math, but there is. So let's keep going. Let's push through this very quickly. So this year, there's roughly 616 people who died or summited, 17 deaths. That makes a percentage of 2.7%. So let's try to do apples to apples. You take a few years where there were more than 500, 500 or more summits, like in 2006 with roughly 500, 2019, 877, 2012 with 581. Come on, stay with me, stay with me. All of those percentages are roughly around 1.75 to 2%. So this year's 2.76 with that number of summits, um, it makes it, in my opinion, the most deadly year ever in the history of Mount Everest. Clearly, in terms of just absolute numbers on the number of people that died, uh, it absolutely is, is, is that. So, you know, why did so many people die? I mean, that's the question I think that needs to be answered. And if you ask the Nepal Ministry of Tourism, he says, plain and simple, it was climate change. It was cold this year, and that's why so many people died. 
Well, I don't buy that for a second. <clears throat> there have been cold years on Everest where people have not died, mainly because of good judgment by the operators or by the climbers themselves of not climbing in really uh, blustery, high wind chill environments. So just because it's cold doesn't mean you have to die. Uh, but people running out of oxygen, that's that has nothing to do with climate change. People being abandoned, that has nothing to do with climate change. So I just don't know what's going on here. I spoke with several people, and all of this is chronicled or documented in my latest blog, the 2023 season summary. I talked to uh, Caroline, Caroline Pemberton, um, who's a co-owner of Climbing the Seven Summits along with Mike Hamill. And she feels that the low-cost operators, uh, were, they contributed to this. And the thinking is that they basically are a logistics service where you sign up for, let's say, $35,000, $30,000, and you go up, and then fundamentally, you're on your own. And that might explain why some of these people got abandoned or the Sherpas left them, And but we don't know. So it's, it's, I think it's really premature to jump to any conclusions here, but there is a correlation of all the people that died, the 17 the people that died, only two were with uh, foreign companies, uh, foreigner companies. Uh, one was with International Mountain Guides, and the other one was with Madison Mountaineering. And the rest of them were, were with Nepali companies or they were working um, um, with the rope fixing team. The, the three were that died. So, you know, you just got to look at this uh, kind of objectively and, and, and coldly and try to figure out if you're going to go to Mount Everest, um, you know, which one of these companies do you want to go with and how can you mitigate, um, you know, the potential risk that you're going to, that you might uh, incur. And so that starts with having a professional weather forecasting. It starts with having leadership that understands the risk of climbing in, in very dangerous, in other words, high wind environments. You know, typically it's not the cold on Everest, it's the winds. And that goes for almost any mountain around the world from Antarctica to here in Colorado to the Alps. It's really the wind and the wind chill that gets you. It's not the cold temperatures. As the old saying goes, uh, there's no bad weather, just bad gear. And that, there's a lot of truth to that as well. So let me wrap up kind of thinking about this from the perspective of what can change. Well, one thing I think that can change that would not impact revenue, and that's the key point here, because Nepal will not do make any changes that's going to cut their um, the tourism industry in the revenue from those $11,000 per climber permit. This year, they booked 5 million US dollars just off of Everest permits, and another million off the other climbing permits. So um, th this is a drug that they're addicted to, and there's no way they're going to risk that revenue. So how can you make climbing Everest safer without risking revenue? That's the Rubik's Cube that we've got to look at. <coughs> Excuse me. One of the ways is that just like on Denali or on Aconcagua, you can station well-qualified, well-empowered rangers at Camp 2 on Everest on the Nepal site. That's considered to be advanced base camp. There are cooks that stay there all season long, so asking some rangers to stay there all season long is not, uh, you know, not unheard of and, and would be certainly uh, reasonable. They can then be available to do a rescue should somebody get in trouble uh, all the way up to the South Coal. Also, stationing people on a rotating basis at the South Coal so that when people get in trouble under summit push, 
They can go from the South Pole up to the balcony, the South Summit, and so on with lots of supplemental oxygen and help rescue that person and bring them down. And they can rotate spending time at the South Pole because that clearly is a very inhospitable place to stay. The other benefit of having a couple of rangers staying there where they could monitor for theft. We saw it this year. Probably there were 100 oxygen bottles that were stolen. Uh, there were tents that were stolen. Uh, uh, we, we had reports of their tents that were stolen or left behind in the trash up there, and they'd, they'd cut off the company logo so they couldn't trace the, you know, whose, uh, whose tent it was. And, you know, this, this type of stuff has just got to stop. And Nepal has the ability to stop this by investing in some of that $5 million in permit money in doing um, some type of rangers uh, that are at Camp 2, base camp, and also at the South Coal. Another thing that they could do that would be that would not impact tourism revenue at all is use helicopters to ferry all of the fixed rope, all the, the pitons, all the gears needed to put that fixed rope in from Camp 2 up to the summit by helicopter to Camp 2. This year, those three Sherpas died while ferrying gear up to Camp 2. And people are going to carry gear up because, you know, you've got to get, you got to stock, stock those high camps with uh, tent and food and fuel and stoves and, and oxygen bottles and all of that. But where you can cut back on it, I think you should. And the ropes are something that certainly is very, uh, very uh, consuming. It's very physical to take all those ropes up there. It's literally thousands of meters of rope to get up there. So there's no reason why you can't use helicopters. They've done it in the past. They should do it again. You know, and something else that um, would be interesting to look at. And China requires, if you're a Chinese citizen, that you have to have summited an 8,000 meter mountain before you can get a permit to climb on the Chinese side. Nepal has no such requirements. And there's no reason why they shouldn't put in at least a 7,000 meter mountain like Aconcagua or Peak Lenin in Russia or some of the 7,000 meter ones in Northern India or in Nepal like Himlung and make that to be a requirement before somebody can get an Everest permit. Again, today, you know, you can get off your couch and, and pay $11,000 and get on a low-cost team and go climb Mount Everest. You know, you've got to qualify to run the Boston Marathon, but you don't have to qualify to climb Mount Everest. And um, that's one of the biggest mismatches in all of mountaineering. And it wouldn't take much. And also, you know, I think if you haven't climbed a big mountain like an Aconcagua, then you probably don't have any business being on, on Everest in the first place. Because here's the crux of the issue. You don't know what you don't know. You don't know how your body's going to perform at altitude until your body goes to altitude. All this pre-acclimatizing at home, that's good, but it's one of those necessary but not sufficient arguments. Nothing replaces acclimatization like being in the real world and understanding how your body's going to perform at, the, at those altitudes is critical to understanding how you're going to perform once you actually get there on the mountain from the South Pole, from the camp four or three on the north side, and hitting in that death zone, you don't know until you get there and you try it. So having that experience, I think, would be a no-brainer for Nepal to, to require. You know what? It might impact the number of permits because not everybody can afford to go climb multiple mountains and then go to Everest, and that's fine. If it reduces the number of inexperienced people climbing Everest, it's going to directly influence the number of deaths, the number of rescues, and everything else that's bad about what's going on on Mount Everest today. So <clears throat> Nepal Institute, a requirement of a 7,000 meter mountain at a minimum, or better yet, follow uh, China's lead with an 8,000 meter mountain. The best mountain guides out there require that you do that. The worst ones have no requirements except for your bank account number. Full stop. 
You know, the last thing I'll talk about on the on how to make the mountain safer is that um, this year we did see uh, over three people die that were over 50. Uh, there is a direct correlation of, of age and deaths on Everest. Uh, the average age of people on Everest is, is growing higher and higher every year. And so mainly that's because the number of people that under 30 the fewer of those are climbing this year. So that's probably driven by economics more than anything else. So as a result, we're seeing the graying of Everest. And I can speak from, from complete, um, you know, credibility with my gray hair and climbing on Everest. So I speak as an expert about being an old guy climbing mountains after climbing K2 at age 58. I think that anybody who's going to climb these mountains should go have a complete physical, including a stress test. Again, the best mountain the best mountain guides the best operators around the world require that for their eight their clients over 50 and that should be standard and that should be put into the regulations by nepal that would not in uh, that would not cause a, a decrease in their revenue if you're over 50 you probably need to get that anyway uh, before you start doing your training so this is a no-brainer once again so, you know, there's lots of ways to solve this. Uh, it's just a matter of political willpower. How many times have we heard that about many, many problems in our, in our country these days? So, um, you know, that's it. That's the 2023 season. And uh, yeah, my gosh, it's, 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 been a, it's been a good year and it's been a bad year. And I just want to finish up this section by saying that those people that did summit, you know, good on you, good on you, especially all of those uh, climbers that climbed with disabilities. We had people um, that uh, were deaf. We had people without sight. We had people uh, with no legs. We, I mean, it was just an amazing year for people climbing with disabilities. So I'm very, very proud of them and being representatives and role models for their um, communities as uh, not letting a disability um, keep you from doing things. Uh, and then anybody else that summited, you know, good on you also. I mean, this was a tough year at times with the wind and the windshield and the cold. Uh, so sometimes you really had to fight for it. There were a handful of companies that waited until the very last few days, and they reported summiting with no crowds, no winds, and decent temperatures. So just goes to show you that experience, you know, if you pick the right summit window, then you, you won't have any problems. And this comes back full circle to going with the right guide that understands how to make these, these very difficult decisions high up on the mountains. So congratulations, everybody that summited, and now let's move on to the narrative. When we last left off on the narrative, we were at uh, Camp 2. We had summited Mount Everest, and we were coming back down. We got back down to Camp 2. We're sitting in the dining tent, and all my teammates, your teammates, our teammates are sitting around, and we're looking at each other, but we can barely keep our eyes open. We're exhausted after that trip to the summit and back down. Well, we get a good night's sleep. I call it zombie sleep <laughs> because basically you crawl that sleepy bag and oh my gosh, you just fall asleep and you do not move all night long. But as you hear people rustling around the Sherpas, the cooks, you hear the, the pans banging around the stoves, the hiss of the stoves firing up in the cook tent, you slowly start to come to and, uh, and you wake up your first morning of being a Mount Everest summiter. Kind of look over at your teammate. He's still sleeping. And you smile to yourself and you go, oh my gosh, I did it. But then it occurs to you, you've got one more obstacle to go. You've got one more trip down through the icefall. And you know, you've been dreading this the entire time. You hoped that you would get this opportunity. You hoped that all your trips through the icefall would be a round number, because if it's not a round number, something went horribly wrong. Either you got rescued out or you're still there. So here you are, go have breakfast. 
a little bit of coffee, go back to your tent, pack up your pack for the last time, take that down sleeping bag. You turn it inside out to stuff into your stuff sack because it's got it's got uh, coating on the outside that causes it not to, to keep the air inside. So if you turn it inside out, all that air is able to get pushed out when you put it into the stuff sack and make it get smaller. A little trick of the trade, right? You learned that on one of your first trips ever mountain climbing using a down sleeping bag. Well, you all packed up, got the pack all loaded, and now you look out, you're looking around for Dawa. Oh, there he is, there he is. Oh, namaste, namaste, sir, namaste. You clip into the fixed rope from camp two. You go down that rocky gully looking around. You remember how you cursed it the first time you came up with your camp being at the very top. And now you blessed it because your tent was at the very top and you came down from the Lhotse phase from your summit. Okay, now you're back into the Western Coom, clipping that fixed rope. There's a couple of ladders. Well, a couple of them are gone. Looks like the, the gang has rerouted the route a little bit while you're on your summit push. That's good. That's good. Avoid those crevasses. You just need to get down. Short, simple steps. Short, simple steps. Keep going. You're going downhill now. Not a whole lot, maybe five or 10 degrees, but enough to where you can feel gravity now is your friend. Sometimes gravity's not your friend on the mountain, but right now you're appreciating that little bit of extra help because you know what? You're tired. You're tired. You need to get back down to base camp. You need to get back to Kathmandu and get back home. All right. Down to camp one. Not much left of camp one. It's all cleared out. No need for a camp one now. Nobody else is coming up. You're not going to stay there tonight. Go past the, the tent platforms that were carved out by the hardworking Sherpas. You see the boot pass all around the place. You follow that white snake, that fixed line, that white nylon rope. Some people call it Korean ski rope. It looks like a ski rope that you might get pulled behind while slaloming on your favorite lake. Whatever you want to call it is your safety line, and you never, ever stay unclipped from the safety line. Make your way to the top of the icefall. It's still dark. Your headlamp's on because you want to climb that last trip through the icefall in the dark. You want to get every advantage. You do not want to give the sun the chance to heat up that giant serac on your climber's right as you're going down the icefall on the west shoulder of Everest. You don't want to give the sun a chance to cause one of those teetering seracs that come up like a giant water tower out of the icefall, just sitting there just teetering back and forth, and you're just daring it to fall over. Well, you don't want to play that game. This is not the time for Russian roulette. This is not the time for any games. This is the time to be serious, focused, get down. You make your way across the top of the icefall, big jumbled, just ice rack, ice cubes. It looks like somebody, you know, had a NASCAR race and they had a big pile up right in the center field, just cars piled on top of one another. These are ice cubes though. And you know that any moment that icefall could lurch forward. It moves three feet a day, but not like a river. It lurches and you don't want to be in that thing when it lurches. So you keep moving, keep moving. You and Dawa, you're together. He's looking at you. You're looking at him. But by now, you two have been climbing now for almost a month together. You're his family. He's your family. Your kinship on the mountain. You make your way down further. You get into the middle of the football field. Ah, a little sliver of sunlight coming over the top of Lhotse. Ah, what is it about the sun that comes up that makes you feel so good? Ah, if it comes up too much, you get too hot. So you need to keep going. You don't want to be in the ice fall when the sun is blaring on it. So you keep on going. And then all of a sudden you hear it. 
you hear this crash, bam, shoom. you hear this crushing of ice cubes, just this crushing white noise that comes out like a filter. One of the Seracs has fallen. You and Dawa stop, you turn around, you look. He looks at you and he says, that was close. Yeah, it was. Right where you were sitting, taking your break, one of the Seracs fell over. You didn't feel the ice fall lurch, but something moved. Or maybe it was just time. And that's the problem with the ice fall. You don't know when it's time. And you don't want to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. So you keep moving. Stay clipped in that rope. Got your crampons. Full purchase. Getting all 12 points onto the ice as you make your way down. Your pace picks up now. Your adrenaline is going. Your heart's going a little bit faster. Respiration's picked up a little bit. That falling ice rack has really gotten your attention and got you focused. If you had any moment that you were letting it sink in and just getting relaxed and, and just kind of getting a little sloppy with your footwork, that's all gone. Now you're focused. Let's move, let's move, let's move. No longer is it short, simple steps. Now it's a little bit longer steps, a little bit quicker steps. Let's get going, let's get going. Come on, Dawa, let's go, let's go. And he picks up the pace. You're glad now that you can hardly keep up with him because you want to get out of this ice fall as quickly as possible. Okay, you left the football field about halfway down. Now, all of a sudden, you're at a whole stream of prayer flags. Oh, you remember that. The first trip up when you first got to base camp, the first time you ever went into the ice fall, your goal was to go up to the prayer flags. Here's a, stream of, of, no, a thread of prayer flags. There they are. Earth, sky, wind, rain, water, all of them representing the elements of the earth, which I just messed up. <laughs> so you look at the prayer flags fluttering in the wind, and somehow or another that brings a sense of serenity back to you. Okay, everything's calming back down now. You look ahead, it's the sunlight's coming up over Lhotse, and you can see for the first time, you're starting to see base camp. Little yellow dots down there. Oh my gosh, base camp is huge. You know, you haven't stopped and looked at it quite from this perspective because now you're coming down from the summit. Every other time you're going through the icefall, you had bigger things on your mind. You tried to stay focused, but your mind just drifted that you knew there's coming up and that last trip up through the icefall was going to be your trip to the summit. Could you do it? All those doubts, you know, you had the doubter on your right shoulder and the confident on your left shoulder, both talking to you, boss of noise in your head. All that's gone now, but also you're completely focused on getting out of the ice fall, getting back down to base camp. You look around, you try to spot your teams. You know you're right in the middle of that sea of yellow tents, but you can't spot your camp. They all look alike from a thousand feet up at the ice fall. So keep making your way down back to short, simple steps. Short, simple steps. Okay. Coming down, you're at the very bottom of the ice fall. Flowing water now. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it is. May 30th, last day of the season. It's really heated up. There's a river of water now running through base camp. It's a river of running water at 19,000, 17,500 feet. Oh my gosh, this place is melting underneath your feet. It's time to get out of there. This is the reason people don't climb Everest in the summer. It's just too dangerous. Also, you know, the monsoons are going to be getting soon. It's going to be rain down in the flatlands, snow, heavy snow up in the mountains, heavy wind. You need to get off of it. You need to get back down. Keep going. You pick back up. Dawa, let's go. Let's go. We're going. We're going. <laughs> By now, the two of you are needling each other because you're really good friends in the mountains. You're brothers on the mountain. 
So you're going down, you now hit that crampon, uh, crampon point. That's where you always stop to put your crampons on. This time you're going to take your crampons off for the last time. Yep, <clears throat> going to take your crampons off for the last time. Knee, you kneel down on your right knee, take off that left crampon, switch legs, take off the right crampon. Put them together, points to points, wrap the straps around them, strap it onto the outside of your pack. Cinch it in hard so it doesn't fall off. You don't want to lose your Everest crampons. That's something you're going to look at for, for the rest of your life with pride. You and I will keep going now. No longer is a fixed rope there. It's just the two of you walking along. Got your ice axe in your hand. Yeah, you're going to carry that thing all the way into base camp. You don't need it. <laughs> you don't need it, but, you know, I don't know. Maybe it's a pacifier. Maybe it's a placebo. Whatever it is, it's your ice axe that you took to the top of the world. Pull into camp. Namaste, namaste, savage, savage. <laughs> Everybody comes out. The cooks come out. The other people that summited a few days earlier, they're still there at camp. They come out. The base camp staff comes out. Lots of hugs. Nothing but big smiles. Oh, my gosh. You are on top of the world, literally, figuratively, but also literally, only 36 hours ago. Day and a half ago, you were standing up on that top. You turn around, you look up the icefall. You desperately want to see the summit, but you can't see it from the Nepal base, base side. You can see it from the Tibet side from base camp, but from base camp on Nepal, nah, really can't see anything except for that giant icefall that you just got through for the last time. Man, it's over. You're safe. Go grab your cell phone, trying to get that in-cell signal. Yeah, doesn't work. <laughs> and you don't have the energy to go stand on that one rock that's sticking up a little higher than all the rest of them. You stand on one leg with your left arm over your right arm and you're in this, this ostrich position in order to get the right cell phone signal. Nah, just go over and grab the satellite phone. Trust me, it's worth a dollar a minute now. Hi, honey. Backed out safely. You choke up. It's beginning to dawn on you what's happened. You back down. She chokes up on the other end. There you are. Just a couple of <laughs> blubbering bowls of mashed potato separated by a half the globe. But you're united in the satisfaction and of the joy of being back down to base camp, alive, all your fingers, all your toes. You make your way back down to Parache, then down to Namchi, <clears throat> back to Lukla. You do the Lukla shuffle where you wait for good weather to get that little puddle jumper, that little twin otter, S-T-O-L, short takeoff and landing. Take off the Lukla runway for the last time. Take that 30-minute flight, that constant buzz of the engines, the little prop plane just working us little engine off, little engine that could land Kathmandu airport, go back to the hotel Tibet, take the longest shower you have in your life. <laughs> oh my gosh. Then off to have dinner with the team. You call your airline. Hey, I just summoned to Mount Everest. I need to change my flight. I'm sorry, sir. We can't do that. But he didn't understand. They don't care. 
eventually you do work it around. You get a, you get a flight out earlier. You'd made one to leave on June 10th because you didn't know, but now this is June 2nd. Time to go home. Pretty soon you're on that airplane seat and you're flying home. Arrive at the airport. You missed the good old days when people could meet you at the gate as you got off of the airplane. Now you get off the gate by yourself. Make your way through the crowd. You're just one mini. Get a little train that takes you to the main terminal. Come up the stairs. Your heart starts to beat faster. You get a big lump in your throat. You're going to see your family for the first time in two months. Yeah, you FaceTimed with them. You Zoomed with them. That's different. That's different than what you're feeling right now. The touch, the hug, you feel their heart beating. You feel their breath against your face. You kiss, you're home. The next couple of weeks are a blur. You know, there's three situations when you come home from Everest. You summited, you didn't summit and it was your fault, or you summited and it wasn't your fault. All three of them kind of had the same ending. Your friends throw a party for you on a Friday night, you show up, you bring pictures, you bring your ice axe, you bring your crap odds, you want to share that experience with everybody. Everybody's giving you hugs, they're all buying you drinks. And they all want to say, hey, come on, tell us all about it. What was it like summiting Mount Everest? And you start telling them, well, let me tell you, it's not a walk up. It's not as easy as it sounds. No, there's no Starbucks up there. There's no escalator to the top. It was the hardest thing I ever had to do in my life. And I'm so pleased. I'm so happy. So we got there. Okay, that's really good. Congratulations. So what's next? <laughs> the next scenario is even tougher. You didn't summit, and it was your fault. You go to the party. Hey, man, sorry you didn't summit Everest. Sorry about your failure. What? I failed on Everest? No, 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 I didn't fail. I just didn't, I wasn't prepared enough. I underestimated it. I committed the biggest sin that a climber can do. It's the sin of arrogance. I overestimated my capability, and I underestimated how hard it was going to be. Now, this is all on me. Well, tell me, what happened? Well, you know, we were going up, and we left the South Coal, and I was about halfway to the balcony, and then, well, you know, well, that's tough. Oh, man, that's really tough. So, what's next? <laughs> the third scenario may be just as difficult. You didn't summit, and it wasn't your fault. You go to the party, People are still buying your drinks. Hey, man, congratulations. You know, that's tough. Sorry about your failure on Everest. Wait, what again? Failure? I, wait, wait, hold on. This was not my fault. I went prepared. I was, in, I was in Everest shape. I was prepared mentally. I had the mental toughness. I had the experience. I had everything. Well, then what happened? Well, you know, we were leaving the South Coal in the weather forecast. It was wrong, and the wind started to pick up, and it was incredibly cold. I was afraid I was going to get frost. Oh, man, that's really tough. That's really tough. Sounds like that was a really hard time. So what's next? 
So it doesn't matter if you summited, you didn't summit, what most people want to hear is what's next. So what's next? Climb on. This is Alan. And remember, memories are everything.